Welcome to Western New York Catholic Weekly, a production of the Office of Communications for the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. Stay tuned as Greg Prince brings the Catholic newsmakers to you. Wherever it's happening in the diocese, you'll hear about it on Western New York Catholic Weekly. You may remember us talking before here on the program about some of the great faith formation programs they have going on at Our Lady of Pompeii Parish in Lancaster. And uh, unfortunately, with our weather back in uh, January, we uh, had to move our next guest because he had a a really interesting presentation as part of that uh, series and as part of their faith enrichment schedule uh, back at the end of January, exploring the caves of the Dead Sea. And when uh, they approached me about doing it, I thought, well, there's something we don't talk about every day. In fact, I don't believe I've ever talked about it on the program. So joining us is Deacon David Rotterman. Uh, Deacon Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's uh, something uh, new and and different. And I also was not aware, um, even though that you, uh, uh, it just wasn't fresh in my mind when we scheduled, you actually worked just down the street from us at uh, WNED. Yep, I worked on in the television production department, and uh, glad to be up here uh, talking about the Dead Sea Caves. Um, now, I, w- I want to talk about your, uh, your presentation in particular from back in January, but uh, just give us a little refresher about this kind of series you put together at Our Lady of Pompeii. Yeah, one of the things we're trying to do is is find a lot of different perspectives on different aspects of faith. And uh, so I think probably about two or three years ago, we started, we do it, uh, you know, each month, September through May, uh, like we'll have a Lenten retreat, uh, we have monthly speaker series, and they really, you know, run the gamut of all sorts of different things. We may talk about the season like Advent, it may just be some spiritual enrichment. Uh, The piece I did was talking about sort of, you know, our history uh, in terms of the Dead Sea Scrolls and Dead Sea Caves. So it's really just a chance to have a very informal discussion. We've done Right to Life presentations, and uh, the information is always on our website, but just really thoughtful discussions about a range of interesting topics. Uh, let me remind people what that website is, OLP, Our Lady Pompeii, parish.com, OLPparish.com, or uh, if you put Our Lady of Pompeii Lancaster into Google, it'll come right up for you. Remember, there are two I's at the end of Pompeii. I always spell it wrong. Yes, so, there are two I's. Yes, exactly. Um, and I'll, let me just, uh, so folks know, because we are in the uh, season here, They uh, we talked about it last year when they did their Lenten Experience. It's kind of co-sponsored by the Depew and Lancaster Parishes. Uh, This year, February 26th through the 28th, and um, A Heart for God, A Powerful Lenten Experience. And uh, I I think it was a great, uh, a great, great three nights last year, and I expect the same this year. St. Mary's on the Hill, right, is where you're having that one, I think. So... Yes, um, it's great to combine with the parishes. You get such a great turnout, and we thought this is just the only way to do it is bring people together. Well, for you guys with the speaker series at Our Lady of Pompeii, it's kind of a nice promotional vehicle, right? It to is, yeah. kind of highlight the, all the stuff that you're doing there, which is terrific. All right, so the Dead Sea. Now, somewhere in my pile of stuff, I actually, you know, have taken a couple of Bible courses, and I have a, a it's an oversized book called Understanding the Dead Sea. Scrolls, and it's not in the forefront. I think of your average Catholic's 
mind when we, you know, when we think about, um, you know, Bible study and whatnot. But the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Dead Sea is really kind of an integral part. When we talk about faith formation, we're talking about going back to the beginning with that, right? Yeah, we're going back really 2,000 years with this at this point. I think the Dead Sea Scrolls are so fascinating, the caves, you know, one is there's this amazing story about finding these ancient scrolls buried in caves, but it's also this dynamic time in our history. You know, you have the time of, you know, right around the year sort of zero in a sense, you know, zero BCE or, you know, zero, you know, CE. You know, CE means the common era, BCE means before the common era. Those are sort of the newer terms we use. But you have this dynamic with, uh, you know, the Jewish people, you have the Romans who control that area and the dynamics of the revolts and how these groups of people said, we have to preserve these sacred writings. What do we do with them? We put them in these caves and these jars. And then they find these after almost 2,000 years. So it opened up all these questions, all this sort of information about what are they about. Uh, so uh, let's go back to your beginning with this, I guess, um, and then we'll get into you know some of the things that are there and what you found in the area and uh, the kind of things maybe that you addressed in January in your presentation. But um, how did this end up on your radar? How did you end up there? Yeah, that's a great question, and thanks for asking. You know, because people said, "Well, why are you talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls?" And I'm, you know, I'm a television producer by trade, yeah. and uh, you know, my family and I moved here to Buffalo in 2000. And prior to that, I was with Nebraska Public Television in Omaha. And part of what our work was at the university is we were working with a group called the sort of the International Studies Group that was preparing to do a research trip to Israel to explore the Cave of Letters. And as a television producer, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go along for that. That sounds really cool. (laughs) Sure. So part of that was we had a small crew, myself and two other people, to go out with a group of scholars, researchers, archaeologists to go back into this cave that hadn't been explored for 40 years to say, what might be there? How can we use some of the new science and technology? So my talk a lot of is a little bit about the history of the time, you know, what are the scrolls, and then sort of my personal experience about actually going back into these places that hadn't been visited for, you know, almost 2,000 years. So it was just a great opportunity. I want to sort of share that with our faith community here in Western New York. Yeah, yeah, which uh, you've already done. I'm glad we could get you in here to uh, do it with the folks on Western New York Catholic Weekly. Deacon Dave Rotterman is our guest from Our Lady of Pompeii Parish. And so you're going as part of this group that are, that is doing a sort of exploration of the cave of letters. Um, I, one of the first things I, I kind of wonder is how do you prepare – for that, did you did you need to kind of do some research on your own or or uh, whatnot going into the whole excursion? Yeah, there was actually a lot of you know to actually go into the caves because one of the challenges with the cave of letters is if you have if you can sort of like take a step back and think, well, where is the cave of letters? Yeah. You know, most people have never heard of it or been to it, so it's one of the caves along the west side of the Dead Sea, which is in the Judean Desert, sort of the southern part of Israel. Uh, incredibly hot. We were there in July, so temperatures were about 110. Um, And there is no vegetation anywhere. Uh, The challenge is the cave is on a cliff face. The cliff face is about 1,000 feet from top to bottom. The cave is about a third of the way down. So it's not like you can just sort of walk into this cave and explore it. Uh, So we had to hire an outfitting company. We had to get extensive permitting from the government of Israel because you can't just say, hey, I think it'd be really cool to go explore in a cave and poke around and see what we could find. So you do a lot of permitting. We hire an outfitting company. And then the hardest part was it was about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Jerusalem to get to our campsite, which was actually above the cave. 
So we're out in the middle of nowhere, no roads, no water, no electricity, no nothing. And then from there, you have to, like, get into the cave. So a lot of work just getting ready. And one of the interesting things was, you know, with television equipment back then, even 20 years ago, wasn't that great. So it was very difficult to shoot. The equipment wasn't as small as it is today. So we had a lot of technical issues, logistical stuff, and then just sort of getting ready for this adventure in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, and all the things that go along with that, like power, lighting, any of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, we, we had our outfitting company had a small generator that, you know, literally was on top of our where our campsite was. And then we had to run a power cord of several hundred feet to get into the mouth of the cave. So it was really just logistically, just to even have one line of power to have a few lights in there just so we could see what we were doing. Uh, okay, so uh, it, it begs the question now because I have an image in my mind. When you first started talking, I thought, okay, so first you've got to do some mountain climbing and get up to this cave. Actually, it's the other way around. You had to go down to the cave. Yeah, we did. So, so our campsite was basically on the top of a plateau, and it sort of overlooked the Dead Sea. Okay. You couldn't approach it from the bottom because you couldn't You're go on the sea. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so we approached from the bottom. It was about a thirty to four minute, thirty to four minute walk to get into the cave. So we had to walk down a slope about twenty minutes, and then we had about a fifteen minute walk on a ledge. And the ledge was truly a ledge because if you looked over, there was six hundred fifty feet below you. So yeah. we actually had to be strapped in with yeah. ropes and cables. We walked across this ledge. And then you get to the base, a little plateau or a little sort of landing that was a 50-foot ladder climb to get into the cave. Wow. So you also had to be strapped on to go onto the ladder. You know, we'd climb up this 50-foot ladder, and then you'd enter the mouth of the cave, and then you're in there. So it was about a 30- to 40-minute walk from your campsite to getting into the cave. And you, of course, had to carry everything with you because you couldn't, like, go back because you forgot something. Sure. And it's, again, like you say, that's, we're not talking a small little HD camera like you'd be able to no. carry today. I mean, even it, it's still oversized compared to home use, but still, I mean, that, yeah, it's quite a, quite a production in that sense. Uh, so now you get to the cave and you get in there. So what's the cave like? Well, the, the cave was very interesting and maybe a little bit about the actual cave itself. So they call it the cave of letters because it had been explored when it was found in early 1950s. And an archaeologist by the name of Yigal Yadin went back in for the second exploration around 1960 or 61. And Yadin was sort of like the rock star of archaeologists, okay. military leader in Israel. He uncovered all of these letters from Bar Kokhba, who led the second revolt against the Romans in like 132. He uncovered these letters from a woman named Babatha, who was like a landowner or something, who had all these letters. So 40 years ago, they found all these letters and these bronze brass vessels. And so we had to go back into the cave to say what might be there and how can we use some of our science and technology to better map the cave. Okay. Uh, so the challenge with the cave was, you know, once you were in, uh, you had to climb through a very small tunnel. You had to get on all fours and climb through a very small little opening to get into the main hall where we could excavate. And probably the hardest part was there because over the years it's on a fault line, which is never a good thing to talk to your wife about. I'm going in a cave with a fault line, <laughs> yeah. so if there's an earthquake, we're not coming home. Uh, a lot of debris had fallen on the ground over 2,000 years, so you're having to walk on fallen rock inside of this large hall. And, of course, underneath the rock is where a lot of the artifacts would have been hidden from the time. Right. Um, so you're in this large room with little lighting. Uh, we generally wore masks because of all the dust and the bats that were flying around, so we kind of had to be mindful of the air we were breathing. So it was very difficult just physically being in there because there was little light and no place to sit, no place to put your gear. You kind of had to 
make it work. How big of an area are we talking about? How far in do you have to go? Uh, that's a good question. I would say the room we were in, it was a large cave. We were only permitted to go in the one room. It was probably maybe 100 feet long. Uh, you know, this, you know, up high, it might be as high as 20 feet, depending on where you were in the cave. So it was, it was a large room. Okay. And there were probably 10 or 12 of us who were doing different aspects of work in that room. I'm Greg Prince. Thank you for joining us on Western New York Catholic Weekly. Our guest today, Deacon Dave Rotterman, who is at Our Lady of Pompeii Parish. And as part of their Faith Enrichment Series, uh, which uh, run, runs every um, church year, starts in September, ends up in May, um, he gave a uh, talk, uh, which we were hoping to, to preview kind of back in January. And of course, you know, our weather wasn't reliable in January. And so he's here now to kind of talk about the presentation he gave. But I love the topic. Uh, it was exploring the caves of the Dead Sea. And uh, so far, we've we've talked about how you got in there and how you kind of planned for the trip. So what's in this cave of letters? And, and I, I'm asking that in the present tense, but I think we also want to talk about what was in the cave of letters. Yeah, I mean, what the scholars and archaeologists say, it's probably the most, you know, fruitful cave they found along the Dead Sea. Uh, You know, Dead Sea Scrolls were found, I think, in around eight or nine caves, and this cave was one of the most productive in terms of finds. A lot of those came in that 1960 excavation with Yigal Yadin. And so what they found is they found an incredible collection of these letters from the revolutionary leader, from this woman, Babatha, but they also found a lot of bronze vessels, uh, incense shovels, different sort of urns. They found textiles. They found clothing. And what it does, it gives you this snapshot back in time to say, well, what did people live with? How did they live back in, you know, say the year 135 when people were there? And I think part of what the story that makes it so fascinating is one of the scholars on our trips believes, you know, he, he can't prove this, but he believes why would they hide these sort of like sacred artifacts in a cave in the middle of the desert? That was exactly what I was going to ask. So like why would they – and these were and these were like sort of ceremonial things you would have used in like maybe a, a, a ritual. And so the one scholar we had, he's a rabbi. Uh, he was really the chief leader. He said, you know, he speculates and believes that could these have come from the second temple? Because again, the Jewish people, when the Romans were coming in, says, OK, we know we're not going to win this. So perhaps during that sort of earlier time when the temple was destroyed in, uh, I think it was 70, says, okay, did they take these things and say, let's hide them in the desert with these other precious things? So could the material in the cave of letters be from the second temple? I mean, it's, it's a fascinating question to ask because they wouldn't have served any purpose out there. You know, right. if they're trying to defend themselves, if they're trying to survive, they would have said, well, let's melt them down for weapons or for common wear. But they buried them in this cave. These had to have been very special, and they date from that time. Well, and certainly when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and we talk about these letters and and whatnot, um, regardless of the actual reason, like how they ended up there or whatnot, it seems pretty clear to me that they were trying to protect this stuff, right? Yeah, I, I think very clearly because you have this, you know, time. I mean, you know, the Romans came into Judea, you know, sort of 60 BCE or so. You know, Pompeii comes in. You know, Herod the Great comes in after that. Uh, so Herod the Great is the one who sort of really builds up the second temple to make it more than it was. And then you have the first revolt against the Romans that was between, I think, 67 and 70. And so the speculation is, okay, at that point, did they start to move things out to these caves? 
And then there was also a second revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt. It was around 132 where this leader said, and we need to take back, you know, our country, you know, come fight with me. They found his letters, some of his military orders there. So you realize the Jewish people said we have to save these precious things and put them someplace. Yeah. Literally, they were safe for 2,000 years. Yeah, until until you mentioned that they, uh, they excavated and they found these in the caves. So – why is it significant to us? What's the importance of this to say modern Catholicism? I think one is. I mean, one is it, it, it puts you right into the time of Christ in those very, very early decades of Christianity. I mean, the Bar Kokhba revolt was 100 years after the crucifixion. So, you know, only 100 years. Uh, you realize it was between the crucifixion and the second revolt is when the Gospels were written. Uh, it's interesting because the only Dead Scrolls they found have only been Old Testament books because, again, the New Testament hadn't been hadn't formed, been formed by them. Sure. Um, and it's also what scholars really believe is that maybe this second revolt was really that break between Christianity as a part of Judaism and Christianity as what we think of as sort of a, a separate faith tradition. You know, because at one point, Christianity really, really was simply a part of Judaism. And then it was during this time when Judaism sort of went, you know, one direction and Christianity became more of a separate faith tradition. So you have all of this going on. So if we can look at the time period, the people live there, the artifacts, how does it help us better understand our sort of shared faith, our shared understanding? And this is that time period that gets us right to that moment. So when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I think is the thing people are most familiar with that they maybe heard about or whatnot. Um, what are those? Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were really, they found, I think it's around 800 different pieces of, of documents. Uh, you know, some, you know, obviously are sort of biblical manuscripts, all from the Old Testament, you know, Psalms, Deuteronomy, uh, Isaiah. So they have all the books, I think except for the book of Esther, they found fragments in these caves. There's a great story, I think, why they think Esther wasn't a part of that. But so they found all the books of the Old Testament in pieces and parts and little part. Uh, they found sort of, you know, sort of sectarian documents, you know, decrees, rulings, just sort of the business of the day. Uh, they found, you know, apocryphal writings, you know, by, you know, books that didn't make it in the Bible. So you have these sort of three things that they found. And most were written, I think, between maybe 300 BCE and sort of when Qumran was destroyed, where they copied a lot of these around the first revolt. So again, you have around this couple hundred year period where these were copied, placed in these jars, and then stored in the caves for sort of posterity. Is this some of the oldest, like most direct biblical documents that we have? Uh, it is. As far as I understand, these are among the oldest, if not the oldest biblical manuscripts and the largest cache of those. Uh, you know, you can see them at the Israel Museum. You know, if you ever had a chance to go to Jerusalem, they have an entire shrine of the book where they display these writings. But again, it gives you that chance to get back to closer to the source. You know, we'll never find version one of Isaiah, but, you know, these are at least getting us closer to those original writings. And that gives you a window into the time and, you know, the translation. Most of them, I guess, were in Hebrew, um, you know, so that's the language these were written in. And I mentioned the the book that I have, understanding the Dead Sea Scrolls and seeing some of it, even though I can't read it, you know, the, the direct language. I mean, it is kind of fascinating to think that these were preserved and, you know, found in in many ways in kind of the most random of places. 
I mean, we're like, who would have thought that you go in these caves and here are these manuscripts? You know, it's fascinating. Leads me to back to your expedition when uh, you were there. So, what was kind of the final result of that? What did the research that you did uh, lead to? Uh, really, a couple of things. One is we had you know some new technology, so we were able to use. Uh, computers, which actually I look today were kind of rustic 20 oh, years sure. ago. Oh, sure. I mean, you probably thought it was uh, cutting edge at the time, But right? they were able to use what they call a GPR, ground-penetrating radar, because you wanted to be able to look below the boulders. You know, there's no way to move them. We weren't allowed to move them. So using the GPR, they were able to do a better map of the cave, which they didn't have. You know, the only maps they had were from 1960. You know, they were pretty primitive. They didn't have any way to do the measuring. Right. Uh, so we have a better map of the cave. And then we actually also use what they call an endoscope, which they actually use in surgical procedures, uh, you know, a flexible tube with a camera at the end. So we could actually go underneath the rocks and see what may have been left from the earlier expeditions. And we found some pieces and different things. And so they've done some, uh, you know, since that time, other excavations to try to get a sense of what still may be under those rocks. Because uh, you don't want to move them. You may destroy it. It's very hard to get in there and move them. But so you really were able to map it. And then you could start to look below the surface to see what else might be might be found. Is that an end goal at some point eventually to try to move some of these rocks, to try to recover more of uh, That's this? a good question. I, I, I would think a... in terms of um, – we're talking about it obviously from our Christian and, and Catholic perspective, mm-hmm. the interest there. But um, I would think in terms of the history of Israel and Judaism, this has to be significant. Yeah, yeah, it's an incredibly important cave. I mean, like I said earlier, you know, the Cave yeah. of Letters is, you know, one of the most fruitful caves in terms of artifacts, in terms yeah. of writings. And, and most people would agree it's like there's more in that cave. It's just a matter of how you get into it. Yeah. And then the challenges and, and also being mindful of if you start moving stuff, you could create rock right. falls from the ceiling. Right. You could disturb something. You could damage something. So it's so it's very difficult to sort of figure out. So using – without moving things, using the technology to say, well, what might still be under there? And perhaps you could do more of a targeted exploration. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I would think, you know, if there's more stuff there, not just you, but people would want to see it. You mm-hmm. know, not just scholars, but you would want that history, you know, of, of the area and your people. What about you personally? How, um, uh, what did you come away from this whole experience with? Obviously, you're still talking about it today. So Yeah, it, it was an incredible opportunity. I mean, really a once-in-a-lifetime, so I really feel blessed to have this opportunity. I think what struck me is, you know, the one part that we hadn't covered was people died in the cave. You know, because basically this would have been the final outpost for the Jews at the time. You know, the Romans were coming after them. You know, this Jewish band of rebels could not stand against the Roman army. And what was so fascinating was we were camping above the cave, and around where we were, there was a Roman camp that was built. So at the time, the Romans, who were incredibly smart, had all the resources available, said, well, we could try to storm the cave. We could try to climb into the cave. But what they did was they simply waited them out. I mean, so we have the camp that's directly above the cave. Did they wait there for six months? For two years, you know, we don't know because when they found remains of people, there was no trauma. There was no damage. So the sense was the people in the cave sort of died for their faith, tried to die for their freedom. And the Romans said, well, we can simply wait them out. Um, And so I think it was just one of those profound moments. I think, boy, the incredible struggle 
you know, the sacrifice they made to say we need to have our freedom, we need to have and be able to practice our faith. And likely many of them died in that cave. I'm fascinated. I'm <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's amazing. All the history, the the entire story of it I think is uh is fascinating. And I think people really it's not even on their radar. So thanks for coming in and sharing some of that with us. No, thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. Uh, Deacon David Rotterman is at Our Lady of Pompeii Parish. Uh, He actually did a presentation back in January on exploring the caves of the Dead Sea. It's part of the Our Lady of Pompeii um, Faith Enrichment Series. Anybody's welcome to go to that. It's usually on a Monday night, so uh, you can check their website, olpparish.com, uh, or just look up Our Lady of Pompeii Lancaster on Google, and you'll go to their website and see all the information. Their Lenten series is coming up as well. That's February 26th through the 28th. They participate in that at St. Mary's on the Hill in Lancaster with uh, you know all the parishes of Lancaster and Depew, so it's uh, um, they're doing a lot of great things at Our Lady of Pompeii. So keep up the good work there, Deacon Dave. All right. Thank you very much. And if you're looking for information uh, about our program, any of the things that we do, again, go to buffalodiocese.org under the News and Media tab or uh, the namesake of the program, wnycatholic.org slash radio. You can find our podcast. We put some show notes there. So I'll put the link to the parish on there as well. I'm Greg Prince. I'll be back with you next week. You've been listening to Western New York Catholic Weekly, produced by the Office of Communications for the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo, with the help of the Catholic Communication Campaign and this radio station. Call us at 847-8744 or send us an email to radio at buffalodiocese.org. 